prophecy of Jeremiah. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened." You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, and make them a horror a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So far, our scripture reading. Let's sing in response to this reading from Psalm 137, stanzas 1 and 2. The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, the verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. After the proclamation of God's word, 
Let's respond together by singing again from Psalm 106, verses 20, 21, 22, and 23. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm sure you all know that the story of Daniel is a story that has fascinated both Christians and non-Christians alike. After all, everybody loves a good hero story. Amongst all the heroes of the Bible, Daniel ranks right up there with Moses, with David, with Samson. Perhaps he's even the greatest of them all. He was a young lad probably younger than 20 years old when he was captured by a foreign army, forced to serve its pagan king. His life characterizes what a Christian should be and how a Christian should live in the middle of persecution and how a Christian should avoid temptation to be conformed to this world. Daniel's heroism And the heroism of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is also celebrated in the New Testament. They stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. Hebrews 11, 33 and 34. It's no wonder that somebody wrote the song, Dare to be a Daniel. And so at one level, the book of Daniel is an encouragement for all Christian men and women and boys and girls. The story of Daniel encourages us to be faithful in the face of growing anti-Christian sentiment. It encourages us to rely on the promises of the Lord, who will not desert his faithful children who rely on him. Faithfulness will be vindicated. At the same time, however, and even more importantly, the book of Daniel is a book that gives us a distinctly God-centered worldview. Even though we are given some some very detailed stories from the life of Daniel, they all serve to enhance the, the overall theme of the book, that God is sovereign over history and the kingdoms and the empires of this world. And that's also the theme of the sermon. God is sovereign over history and the kingdoms and kingdoms and the empires of this world. And so the book of Daniel is a book about the big picture. It covers the whole of human history, And some chapters unpack certain parts of that history, certain parts of the big picture. The stories of Daniel's life and the visions that he he had, they have been recorded for the church so that the people of God are both warned and comforted. We are warned that before the end comes, we will face many antichrists. In other words, as Jesus told his disciples, the end is not yet but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the hope of Christians is not a vain hope congregation. Daniel 12, for example, tells us that one day there will be a resurrection from the dead, a day of final judgment, a day when the Son of Man will be revealed in all His glory to the whole earth, and all those who trust in Him will be vindicated. So the central focus of in the book of Daniel, and, and the focus of the prophecies in this book are on the lordship of Jesus Christ. The dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, the visions of Daniel, 
they are fulfilled in the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Earthly kingdoms come and go. And kings and governments rise and fall, but the kingdom of Christ remains forever. The stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 of Daniel that was cut out with, without hands. It breaks in pieces all the idols of men's creation and all the kingdoms of this world and ultimately it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. God's kingdom has come and it is coming and its final consummation will take place after the final Antichrist is revealed and when he is defeated at the second coming of Christ. This, in brief, is the message of Daniel. And that's a message that's needed for the church today too, isn't it? Because we live in a time when, when our culture promotes and, and elevates all kinds of spiritualism and all kinds of false gods. Universities in our country have special departments devoted to native spirituality, eastern mysticism, feminist religion, and the God of evolution. But you are free to mock the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. The Israelites, they wondered, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? And that's the great question for us too, isn't it? How can we, whose citizenship is in heaven, sing the Lord's song while we live here as aliens and exiles? But the truth is, beloved, we can sing the Lord's songs in exile here simply because He is Lord. We can sing because Christ reigns. We can sing because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, that He shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, verse 15. And that's the message of Daniel. And we find that message already in the opening verses of this chapter. The book of Daniel opens by making two very distinct statements about the siege of Jerusalem and its subsequent conquest by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The first statement describes this event from the perspective of secular history. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The second statement gives us a theological perspective, or you could say that it describes this event from God's perspective. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And so these two perspectives are woven together throughout the book of Daniel. Indeed, these two perspectives are woven together throughout Scripture. There are two ways that we can view life on earth. It can be viewed from a horizontal perspective as we observe, as we observe what happens with our own eyes. We call that history. Life on earth can also be viewed from a theological perspective. As Christians, we're not merely concerned with the who or the what or the when, but also the why. We want to relate history to what the Bible teaches and to understand it according to the purposes of God. And the first two verses of Daniel 1 show us these two viewpoints, the viewpoint of history and the viewpoint of the Lord, or the human viewpoint and the divine viewpoint. The viewpoint of history tells us that in the 7th century B.C., the kingdom of Assyria was being replaced by the Babylonian Empire. Assyria was ruled by kings like Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser V. He was the one who ravaged the land of the ten northern tribes, deported them from their homeland. 
This happened around the years 740 to 700 B.C. And in 701 B.C., Sennacherib of Assyria sacked the city of Lachish in Judah, and he besieged the capital city of Jerusalem. However, an angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 of his soldiers, and Judah was saved. You can read about that in 2 Kings 19. After that, the Assyrian Empire never regained its former glory, and, and later in that century, the kingdom began to weaken, and eventually the city of Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. under King Nabopolassar, who was the father of the famous Nebuchadnezzar. As the Babylonians continued their wars of aggression and their expansionist policy, they also took aim at the lands around the Mediterranean, including the land of Judah. And the fall of Judah and Jerusalem occurred in three stages, in the years 605, 597, and 587 B.C. And the entire story is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. So verse 1 of Daniel then records in, in brief what happened at the very first siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Along with King Jehoiakim, Daniel and his three friends were taken captive and transported to Babylon, the first wave of exiles. Besides taking captives, Nebuchadnezzar also removed sacred vessels from the temple of the Lord and placed them in the house of his God. Now this event in history, congregation, cannot be separated from the larger whole. No event in history can be separated from the whole of history. The siege of Jerusalem and its subsequent fall is, is no exception. The event is simply a part of the conflict that runs through the whole of history. The conflict between the people of God and the people of the world. And this conflict can be traced back to many other events. Not the least of which is, of course, man's attempt to build a tower in the plain of Shinar. Notice that that name comes up in these first two verses as well. And that tower would reach to the heavens and bring fame and fortune to its builders. Genesis chapter 11, right? You remember the story of the Tower of Babel. It was built in direct disobedience to the Creator. Men attempted to build a totalitarian and an autocratic state, one that would make them independent from their Creator. And the events in Daniel chapter 1 are part of this age-old conflict of the world against the church. And it's illustrated and described in Daniel 1 by the simple description, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And this is a conflict that can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, when God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a conflict that finds its major crisis point in a picture that we find in Revelation chapter 12, where the Apostle John sees a vision of a dragon standing before a woman about to give birth. The dragon is waiting to devour her child as soon as it's born. And we read there, and the woman gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Well, that woman is the church. That child is Christ. 
And the dragon is the devil, that ancient serpent from Genesis 3, who would stop at nothing to prevent the Christ child from being born. And the final consummation of this ancient conflict is further described in Revelation 12 or 17 and 18, where it describes the destruction of the beast and the fall of Babylon the Great. And so Babylon and Jerusalem represent two cities, two kingdoms, to which all men and women belong. They are the symbols, congregation, of where our loyalties lie. We have a choice. We either belong to Babylon or we belong to Jerusalem. We either enter the broad gate or the narrow gate. We either travel the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. You must make a choice. You cannot serve two masters. That's a fundamental fundamental truth by which every Christian must live. You cannot serve God and mammon, says our Lord Jesus, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. You must seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's always the case with God's people. You must make that choice and continue to make that choice every day. And there are times when that will be more difficult than others. Daniel found out what it was like to serve the Lord while at the same time serving as a cabinet minister in King Nebuchadnezzar's government. He had to make choices. Choices that would cost him. But Daniel relied on his God and he trusted in the Lord and the Lord rewarded his faithfulness. He blessed his servant He gave Daniel favor in the eyes of his captors. But that's getting ahead of the story. The siege of Jerusalem congregation is evidence that there are times in history when the conflict between the church and the world erupts in violent bloodshed. And sometimes the conflict becomes very public. And the consequences are public too, just as in this case. God was robbed of his possessions, and everybody could see it. His name was blasphemed. The vessels of his temple were placed in the shrine of a pagan god. And this is always the goal of the city of the world. The kingdom of darkness wants to rob the Lord. That was Satan's goal in the Garden of Eden when he deceived Adam and Eve. He wanted to rob God of his creation. He wanted to rob the father of his children. And he wanted to rob God of his honor. Satan convinced Adam to make himself the entire center of the universe. And by doing so, he had Adam join him in his blasphemy against God. And he robbed God of the honor that is due his holy name. And so we should never forget that this is the central significance of history. All the conflict in the world, whether, whether it's cosmic or global or national or personal, it is all spiritual conflict. Spiritual conflict lies at the heart of every historical event, however great or even ordinary it might seem. On the grand scale, this conflict is Satan's attempt to destroy the church and the people of God. The history of redemption shows this time and time again, how he attempts to thwart God's plan of redemption, how he endeavors to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world. But since Christ has come, 
Satan now turns his attention fully on the church, the bride of Christ. So on a smaller scale, his attention and his focus is now on you. Because he doesn't have to entice the world to follow him. But he would love to rob God of his people. He would love to rob God of glory by getting, to, getting you to live according to, to the laws of the city of this world instead of living in the city of God and for the city of God. He would love you to think that, that God is weak and that he is strong. And humanly speaking, that's what it must have seemed like to the pagans in Babylon. Judah's God had been defeated. And to the Jewish exiles, it must have felt as if Yahweh had deserted them. From all outward appearances, the forces of hell had prevailed. But what they and what Nebuchadnezzar did not realize was that God had not removed his hand from the rudder that steers the ship of history. Nebuchadnezzar was not the only, his, his was not the only viewpoint. In fact, his viewpoint isn't even important. It is God's viewpoint on history that gives us the right perspective. In verse 2, we find a parallel description of this historical event. And the Lord gave, emphasis on the word gave, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nebuchadnezzar came and he besieged Jerusalem. Sure he did. But the Lord gave its king into his hand. You won't ever find a statement like that in a modern secular history book. And there are very few historians who are willing to admit such a truth. And yet Judah's demise is not simply the consequence of Babylon's military strength and power. But Judah's demise is the consequence of God's sovereign plan as he moves men and kingdoms on his chessboard. The chessboard of redemptive history. And so right at the beginning of the book of Daniel, we're told that Judah's God is the one who directs all of these events. And how did the author know this? Well, we know, of course, that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write in this manner. But he also knows God's word. And he believed God's prophecies. In giving Judah to Babylon, the Lord was simply being true to his word. Already in Leviticus 26, Yahweh had spelled out for Israel the blessings and the curses of the covenant, threatening threatening them with, with exile and deportation if they rebelled against him and served other gods. Even more specifically, during the reign of Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah reprimanded the king for making an alliance with Merodach Baladan, who was at that time king of Babylon, and trusting in their joint forces to keep the Assyrians at bay. And Isaiah spoke this word to him, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And now that prediction came true. The Lord is faithful to his word. And we often think of God's faithfulness as as a positive thing. 
But the fact is that the Lord is also negatively faithful. And if we keep in mind what he said in Leviticus 26 and also in Isaiah 39, what he spoke to Hezekiah, then we have to say that he is even severely faithful. The prophet Jeremiah even makes a point of declaring that the Lord would send for Nebuchadnezzar, whom he calls the Lord's servant, to punish Judah. Because the people of Judah would not listen to the Lord, but they persisted in turning away from the God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar might have thought that laying siege to Jerusalem was his grand idea, his initiative. But the Lord makes clear that he uses even pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. And if the Lord is so faithful in keeping his threats of judgment, congregation, then surely he will be just as faithful in keeping his promises of grace and mercy. The key thing to keep in mind is that God is faithful to his word. And in light of the fact that he gave Judah into the hand of Babylon, this is really important for God's people to remember. Because what's so striking about verse 2 is that God not only gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, but also some of his vessels from his own house. He gave them to Nebuchadnezzar so he could cart them off to Babylon and stash them in the, in the treasure house of his God. And there's no doubt about how the ancient media would have viewed such a move. Because in the ancient Near East, the fortunes of a God and and his people were, were intertwined. They were considered ins- inseparable. So Judah's king, along with the vessels from the temple of God's house, that they were taken would be interpreted that Judah wasn't just a loser, but their God was a loser. Humanly speaking, the humiliation couldn't have been greater. God's glory was being discounted and Nebuchadnezzar's glory was being enhanced. Earlier in Israel's history, a similar pattern occurred. During the time when Eli was judge in Israel, the Philistines captured the Ark of God during the battle with Israel and they placed it in the shrine of their god, Dagon. 1 Samuel 5. Everyone knew what that meant at that time too. Yahweh was subservient to Dagon. But that impression got reversed overnight when the next morning Dagon's priest found the image of Dagon flat on his face and his head and his hands separated from his torso. And so when the Lord gave some of the vessels of the house of God into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, he knew what it was going to look like. The pagans in Babylon would be singing the praises of Marduk. And so, brothers and sisters, what do we see here? We see a unique characteristic of our God. He is willing to suffer shame for his people. He is willing to suffer shame if it will awaken his people to the danger of not listening to their God. And in this way, too, he shows himself faithful to his covenant. The Lord is willing to suffer shame in order that his people would be saved. Willing to suffer shame to shake them up. See, look, Jerusalem lies in ruins. And the people would have to ask themselves, why is this happening? The Lord wanted them to repent. And God showed this same characteristic in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the character of our God, beloved? Yahweh is a God who is willing to allow his name to be blasphemed on our account. He allowed his name to be blasphemed by the pagans in Babylon. What is even more moving and horrifying and yet wonderful at the same time is that Christ allowed himself to be blasphemed and mocked and spit upon by his very own people. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And yet he came in spite of the fact that he knew this was going to happen to him. He gave himself to shame and blasphemy so that we might wake up, as it were, and come to our senses. He gave himself to shame and dishonor so that we might be purged from our shame and our dishonor. And so we see that when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it, God was busy at work for his people, busy at work for you and I. He gave up Jehoiakim and some vessels from his temple so that his people would repent, so that a remnant of faithful Israelites would one day return to Jerusalem, so that the church would continue, so that the seed of the woman would not be wiped out, so that Satan would be defeated, so that Messiah would come at the appointed time. And you and I, Receive salvation. Today there are many events happening in the world. Big events and small events. Significant events. Seemingly insignificant ones. Well one thing is certain. One thing that God's people know. We know that the Lord is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. He's sovereign over all these these things. And we know Because we know the secret of the words, and he gave. The Lord gave. He gave Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Christ into the hands of Pilate. We are able to see it. And we have seen it, brothers and sisters, in the empty cross. For Christ is risen. And the Lord has given him all power in heaven and on earth. And now we live under his reign. Praise be to God that we can sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land. Amen.